Let's Talk Home Repair is sponsored by Matriarchy Build, who provide tele-DIY services connecting homeowners to vetted pros for one-on-one video consultations. Visit matriarchybuild.com to get guidance on projects as small as a leaky faucet or as big as a home remodel. You can even book a session with Amy themselves. Visit www.matriarchybuild.com. Tele-DIY. Like telehealth? Yeah. Cool. I know. Hi, everybody. We had big windstorms in Seattle this week, and that means no power at the studio. So we had to use Zoom technology for this episode. Please forgive the audio quality, and we still hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm Amy, general contractor. And I'm Alicia, homeowner, and we're talking home repair. Hello, everybody. We have a special guest today. We have Katie McCammett from Co-Housing Solutions with us to continue the conversation we started uh, last episode or a couple episodes ago about co-housing. Katie gives us a beautiful overview uh, of co-housing, what it looks like today, different models, and where you can get more information about it. She even answers a couple questions that some of you had from our conversation earlier. But we start with Amy and Kayla from the field. They found a new stud finder, kind of fancy-dancy, and they both tried it, and it turned into a bit of a debate. Kayla's going to talk about a little product review that she did um, last night, and then I actually gave it a little a little, uh, you know, run myself today. So we're expanding on stud finders. Why is this stud finder special? Oh, because this one is supposed to, um, you're supposed to be able to see in the walls. You're supposed to be able to see wires and pipes. So you have x-ray um, vision. Yeah, and it, and it an adapter. You have to buy the, the actual um, unit itself. Um, but this unit um, also, uh, it syncs with your phone, so you're able to see what's in the wall. Cool, cool. So Kayla, tell us about it. You road tested it? Uh, yeah, I did test it, and I actually got to test it on something pretty cool because my apartment is made of only metal studs. So ah. when you're talking about the features on this, it's supposed to tell you the difference between a wood or metal stud. Uh, so if it had said wood, I would have known it was wrong because I only have metal. That was the awesome part about it. <laughs> cool. And does it see electric uh, wires too? I read about a stud finder that will tell you where your electrical wires are. Yes, it did have, uh, tell me when there was a wire. Uh, it told, uh, told me about a pipe. Uh, and you used it on your phone? Yeah, the app part. Yeah, so whatever it was seen was on my phone and telling me what it was. And so how likely are you to use something like this? <laughs> well, da, da, da. here's the question. It's a neato bell and whistle, but is it really useful? I would not use it. <laughs> but I suppose the only time I found that I would think to myself that I would use it is if I was super nervous that right there, wherever I was working, there could possibly be a pipe. But the science behind it, the mechanics behind it, and the way my mind works, I would much rather use my magnetic stud buddy. Oh, you you even are committed to the magnetic stud finder. I am because it's science. It's just facts. Like there's it's no not science. It's crap in a wall, which no, is like it, no. Okay, look. Here's the tell thing. Tell me why. Tell me why I'm wrong. Okay, I'll tell you why you're wrong. Because in construction, there are things that we have to have that are non-negotiables. So with a non-negotiable item, such as like a stud and you not being able to see it, drywallers, for example, have to have a stud to hang drywall. 
They're not going to glue it. It's just not how it works. They're going to use a nail or a screw. Right. So I have a 98% chance that my magnetic stud finder is right by finding that. Yes, I think think that is a high, high, high percentage because how many (laughs) screws for an eight foot floor to ceiling, how many screws are going to be in drywall? Well, so think about it, right? Actually, if there's going to be a lot, you'll still find a pattern and that pattern is going to be the stud layout. If I was to mark where I found one and then mark another one and it was like an inch off to the left or right, I would know by my next one, the pattern, you're going to see where that stud actually is. So my high percentage is because it works that many times out of 100. I know because I've been using it for 15 years and I have yet to have any problems with it. Interesting. (laughs) Amy, your opinion. Plus it was hard to use. No, no, no. I I agree with, I agree with you. The the too many bells and whistles. It's like, what are you really just going to have in your bag and grabbing? I prefer the, I'm impressed by the density stud finders because then that light will tell me, oh, it begins there and it ends there. Hallelujah. That's not always right either. So, like, regardless, we should just start with a, like, precursor of stud finders are never 100%. Which one do you like better? Because which one out of nine out of ten times are you going to find that works for you? Right, right, right. So, Amy, what is your preference? Um, I was not that impressed with this um, one that hooks up to the phone. It, and, you know, I'm still going to give it a little little bit of time. Um, it was a little spendy. It was like, it's uh, about $120, I think is what I spent on it. Um, I, I think I need to play with it a little bit more. Um, and it's actually got, kind of scared me a little bit because it's got a little setting on there for expert. And it's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> so I, I, you know, clicked on the expert, <laughs> right. And, and it gives you this like, like um, infrared kind of blob that you're looking at as you're as you're moving it on the wall and i remember reading in the description of it that you can actually find animals in the wall it's actually the heat sensor um, oh so they'd have they'd have to be alive yeah 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 so my my first impression was like yeah it's not that great but you know i'm not going to give up on it quite yet we'll see and maybe like you say in special situations if you're concerned about wires or pipes or things there yeah the yeah the the stud part of it is i mean you can figure that out with a a tape measure kind of thing right and and be pretty accurate but the pipes and the wires are are kind of yeah those are those are the hard part sure 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 i think find out other ways too like with the tape measure there's going to be some identifying factors that you could use i find that the tape measure is more likely than not inaccurate if you have windows interrupting you and doors interrupting you and you know not for your purposes but for people trying to hang curtains and trying to hang uh pictures and that type of thing i think the density works very well <laughs> and okay. i think if you're gonna hang a picture you know it's always best to have a buddy and you know you should have a stud buddy with you <laughs> that's good we were then joined by katie mccammett from co-housing solutions all right, so um, today I would like to welcome Katie McCammett of um, Co-Housing Solutions. She is located in Nevada City, California, 
And I am part of her program, 500 Communities, that's uh, working on uh, co-housing development. Um, welcome, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to chat. All right. So we've got some, um, I actually asked some questions of some friends um, about what they would want to know about co-housing. Um, so, and I didn't, I didn't um, edit them at all. I just let them, you know, throw them out there uh, because, you know, I know the answer to some of these things, but I thought those listeners who are out there may, may have the same questions. So some of them are, you know, pretty, pretty basic. And some of them are like, oh, I never thought about that. So um, actually, actually, let me back up a little bit and, and let me have you give us a, just a little bit of a, a, you know, bio of yourself and how did you get into co-housing and, and all that kind of uh, great background information. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, I've been doing co-housing forever. I think um, I started as an architect and I first came across co-housing as an architecture student in Denmark. And to me, it just made sense, you know, as I looked forward and thought, you know, how do I have a professional career and a family? It's like, oh gosh, I'm going to need some support because I have a fabulous extended family and none of them near live on the same block as me to help out with kids. And so just in my own life, as I thought about the life I wanted to live, I couldn't imagine how I could do it without the broader support that used to be provided in some situations by extended family living nearby. So it, it hit a, a point, point with me very personally. And then uh, my ex-husband and myself, we had Del Nobody else seemed to know anything about it. So we went back and spent a year in Denmark talking to everybody we could get a hold of. And that was the, the basis of our first book, which really introduced co-housing to the English-speaking world. Um, that was a long time ago now, back in the late 80s. And I have been working on developing co-housing communities ever since. So I've been the architect, I've been the developer, I work as a development consultant now. Um, I've lived in co-housing, I've raised my daughter in co-housing. So I've, I've kind of, I've lived in, in co-housing all through the different phases of my own life. And then working with co-housing communities all across North America, uh, from urban to rural, uh, self-developed, partnering with developers, basically every which way you can put it together. Well, you know, since you've done a little bit of everything, what ends up being your favorite aspect of it? The development, I guess. The development part? Oh, well, ultimately, I'm a deal maker, you know. <laughs> so um, people, you know, they see the woman, they never know what, quite what to do with me. And they think I do process. <laughs> But I'm way too impatient to do process. I always recommend <laughs> other people. And what I really like to do is put together deals. You know, to, I run the budgets. You know, I introduce people to the harsh realities of real estate development. But like, I'm a, I'm, I actually believe that most co-housing communities would do better partnering with a developer. But developers don't really understand co-housing. They don't understand the business model. So I'm often working with communities to build their professional team and find, help them find the right mix of, of local professionals as well as those that work across the country. Ah, cool. And I think, I actually think, okay. I think really yeah. the exciting thing is people, just now you've got me going on this. Um, <laughs> I, I have lived this really fabulous, interesting career because I think the thing with real estate development, it is involves 
politics, it involves construction, design, um, you know, marketing, all these different things have to come together for a successful development. So that keeps it really interesting. But the most powerful thing about it is to do work where you, you literally see the end result coming out of the ground. And most people never get that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm the person who is there at the very first meetings with the group when they, they don't know what they want to do and they can't imagine and they can't believe they can really pull it off. And then I get to see it really come out of the ground and that them living it. And that's a pretty powerful thing to be part of. Would you ever consider not living in co-housing? Oh, who knows what life will bring? You know, <laughs> you know. Okay, okay, that's fair. That's you know, fair. right, or right. Something right. might change. I mean, at this point, I can't imagine why I would not do uh, that. But I've I've right, been around right. long enough to know that life often brings you things you didn't plan for. So, um, I love oh, living sure. in co-housing myself. It's a great thing to go home to. I really enjoy my my own community, and so I, I have no plans to leave. What kind of personality is best suited for co-housing? You have to ultimately believe that you can get more, your quality of life will improve by collaborating with others. It's actually easier to say who doesn't work well in co-housing. If you'd like really clear hierarchy and rules um, and you want to know who you can blame for things, you're not going to do very well in co-housing. Got it. On the other hand, I think people often misconstrue it. They often think, oh, well, I mean, I hear this all the time. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty introverted. I, I really can't. I think it's a great idea, but I can't imagine living in community. Well, actually, we have a really high percentage of introverts in co-housing. So people don't necessarily expect that, right? Right. But in fact, um, what introverts really like is that, you know, deeper conversations, not surface level conversations and building longer term relationships, not chit chat. So we actually have, a, so I think it works really well for introverts, actually. That makes a lot of sense because, I mean, we're all in communities. It's just a matter of whether it's a, whether it's a community you want to choose and help foster and help develop or just the crapshoot of wherever you end up buying your house. No, exactly. And I think, I think um, just as you said, we're, we all create community because we're social beings, right? So the thing that's really changed over the decades is... It is less and less community by proximity. And so, you know, people drive to church. They drive to meet up with their hiking group. They drive to see their friends. They, you know, we drive to everything. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then when you can't drive, you realize you don't have community anymore. So I think for there's, this co-housing doesn't replace your other communities and family and good friends, but it brings community right next door. And there's a real power in that because, you know, I, I can borrow some powdered sugar or some eggs. I can ask someone for a ride to the doctor. You know, it's just the, the ease of spontaneity and having people, you know, and like and have a relationship right next door. Sure. Yeah. When I was down visiting, um, uh, doing a, a weekend retreat with, with Katie, we had a community dinner and then that kind of morphed into, um, there were a handful of us that 
uh, went inside in the in the common house and sitting around the table sharing a glass of or a, a bottle of wine kind of thing. And there were probably, I don't know what, 12, 12 of us there, something like that. And, and just to hear the conversations that were going on with the people. And it's like, it definitely sounded like these people knew each other and they cared about each other. Um, and it was it was really, really interesting. Um, and it's like, you know, it's like I likened it. I likened it to when I get together with you and and uh, uh, Sue Jan at Leisha, right? Where we just sit down and we and, and I feel that that's my community, right? That's you and my friends, and and we feel a connection. And it's like that's your neighbor. It's like right there, and you you have that connection. Um, yeah. So it was, it was great. It was great. I loved it. Yeah. No, I think you know you really so, get to know people in a different way, but you know something about their life story and sort of where they've been, what they've been struggling with, and so we, we definitely have a sort of a deeper relationship with people that aren't necessarily your best friends at all, but they're good neighbors, and that's I think a really important distinction. Is in my neighborhood, I'm looking for good neighbors. They don't replace my good friends. Um, mm-hmm. I still have those, and they don't. Some overlap, right. and a lot don't. Yeah. So I'm going to throw a couple of these questions out here as we continue our conversation. So, so one of the questions was, um, am I joining a commune? <laughs> right. Well, first of all, you sure you've gotten that one before. Right. What's a, what's a commune, right? And no, no better <laughs> defined than what's a community. There's a whole range of different types of communities, right? And, and I, I have no judgment about what you should be doing or different people should be doing. So on one hand, you have some communities where your only private space is your bedroom. I mean, there's, there's communities out there that share economies, you know, where all the money is the house money. And then on the other extreme, you have, you know, the American subdivision where everybody has their own single family house and garage and lawnmower and everything themselves. And co-housing is somewhere in the middle of those. I think what distinguishes co-housing is um, as a definition, and it really is not a judgment, it's just a definition is that you have your own home, whether that is for a family of five or a single person, but I got my own kitchen, I can shut the door, um, I, I can create that pri- the privacy I need in my own home. And I have these this community around me and the common facilities we share. So in that way, it's not a shared house, right? You could have a shared house within a co-housing community, but there are two really different levels of how much privacy you have versus how much community and how much choice you have around that. So what, what I find really works well for co-housing for myself, and, and I think for a lot of other people, is that I still have my privacy, I can still close the door, and I, I have a fair amount of control over how much I want to be involved in the community and when I need my own space and need to pull back. So what if you have a dispute with the neighbor? You just you don't like the you don't like the way they have the trash cans out or something like that. What what's the what's the steps for for resolving something like that? Well, you know, first and foremost is talking, right? I mean, one of the shocking things to to me is in modern America, if you have a dispute with the neighbor, you're supposed to just call the police. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God. You know, so I think that would be is first of all just talking and trying to understand the other person. Um, In my community, um, I actually had a dispute with my neighbor um, earlier this year over what I wanted to build on my deck. And and so what uh, we did was we pulled in another neighbor who's a particularly good mediator, really great listener to help us hear each other and find a solution we could both live with. 
So, you know, the solution with the dispute is not necessarily to go to a big community meeting. But one of the great things is being surrounded by people who care about the community is you can pull in other neighbors to help you find solutions. It's, it's interesting to hear that there's no formal mediation process, but the spirit is that everybody wants to live in harmony. So you'll be open to other members of the community helping the two of you resolve your situation. Yes, absolutely. And, and I find, you know, I mean, you know, that if you have a set mediation process, that may or may not work. Um, and so as I think of it more as having a bag of tools and what seems to be the right tool to use in this situation. But really, yeah, I mean, I would say my neighbors and I, you know, people who are attracted to buy into a co-housing community, because it is, a, you know, mostly a buy-in model. So, you know, so you've got a fairly significant financial commitment. Um, sure, right, right, right. And so, so that attracts people who are, are interested in working in a collaborative neighborhood. And so we're looking for the solution for the best solution for the community and, and something we can both live with, right? So it may not be what I started out wanting exactly, mm-hmm. but is it, can we find a solution that will work, satisfies my need and my neighbor's need? It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a different mindset. I, I think that, um, it, you know, in my neighborhood, it's like, oh my God, who's parking in front of my house, right? That's my parking spot. It's uh, the, the co-housing is just a different, it's like, okay, go ahead and park in my spot. It's okay. It's everybody's street kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and actually, I, can I, I tell you a, yeah. a little story? So this just, you know, we, we have a constant sort of email thread going We have in my community. So speaking of that, so my neighbor Stu sent out an email like at 6 a.m. this morning. It was raining all day. And he was like, somebody is coming to fix our Tesla and it's raining and we don't have a garage. And I could really use a garage for this person to work in. And literally within you know 10 minutes, he had a garage that someone offered up. Wow. Oh, wow. People want to help each other. People want to make it easy. Yeah, that's awesome. So how do you get repairs done? You know, is there is there on-site maintenance service? How does, you know, if, if the house needs to be painted, is it is it a community-wide thing or is everybody um, responsible for their individual units? How does that work? Yeah, so, I, you know, every community is a little bit different, right? Because there's a wide range of densities. So there are co-housing communities that are, there's a few that are single-family homes. Most of them are attached townhouses. And then there's more urban models you know, like Capitol Hill co-housing there in Seattle is a four-story building. So, so you know, so they, you know, they're different in terms of how much land you have and what the building style is. Within that difference is, I would say that not all, but the large majority would, um, you're going to maintain the buildings together if they're all built at once. Inside is your issue. So when I want to paint new colors in my interior, that's totally up to me. The exterior is gonna be maintained by the homeowners association. All the work is done in a series of teams. So we kind of look at everything we need to maintain, you know, to run this community. And then we divide it up into different teams. And so there's a uh, village kids team, which is what do the kids need and keeping up with the kids the kids room in the common house. There is the common house team that keeps the common house running and decorated and, you know, tells us when we need some new cleaning system. 
there is the landscape team, there's the finance team, and there is a maintenance team. So the maintenance team's job is not to do the maintenance, but to keep it organized. So everything that falls under the homeowners association would go through that team in terms of, is this something we could, we want to try to do on a work day, or is it something we need to hire out? And then they would run it. So the, in my community, the exteriors are all maintained together. So it's kind of like a condo. The, the difference in that model is that if you come into this community, you have agreed to participate. And so it's not like pulling teeth to have somebody serve on those committees that you mentioned. Exactly. So, and, and it is like my community, most co-housing communities, not everyone, but most of them is a condo. So legally, it's a condominium with a homeowners association. I can get mortgages just like anybody else on a condo. Mm. So, but you're exactly right. The The expectation is that everybody participates. And so everybody, you know, is on one team. Uh, we love our common meal system. So I, I cook once a month for my neighbors. And, and the goal that I, I do want to be part of this community because, you know, there's a lot of other housing out there. Um, <laughs> so if I didn't want to be part of the community, there's really no reason for me to buy into this community, especially because I'm paying for all the common facilities. Right, right. Significantly more than, you know, because you have more common areas by design. Exactly. Than a regular condo situation. So the um, I hate to go to the end game, but how... How do you enforce that covenant then? You know, if if somebody said, yeah, I was for it, they signed up. Is there any device to get people who came in kind of ill-willed or they really changed their mind or they came across, you know, strong problems with somebody else in the community? Does the community, the HOA, have any power or not really because everybody owns their space individually? Yeah, I mean, we find that really it's much more about encouraging and being clear what the expectations are, you know, that that's really where the focus is. And so um, helping people find the place they can plug in and bring their inspirations and ambitions to. So like I'm on the landscape team because I that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to piddle around in the garden, you know, weekend. that's how I my therapy. Right. So I that's the best way to get the best out of me is to plug me into what I want to do. Super. And so then I assume you can't, you don't allow for renting out that unit or do you just everybody who is in the unit still has to um, sign on to the ideas? Yeah, no, we, we have um, homeowners that have rented their homes and, and that's what we're looking for is, you know, residents. We don't really, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're an owner or a renter. We're looking for residents who want to really be active in their neighborhood. Cool. And, yeah. And so when we have some very active renters. How do, how do people get involved in these? I mean, what's, the, what's their first step? Yeah. So usually, you know, people have heard about it like on a radio show like this. There was a great article in the New York Times a few weeks ago. So somewhere great. it showed up on your radar and you're just like, oh, huh. It's kind of interesting and you have all these questions and you don't know if it's for you, but you're kind of intrigued. So the best uh, general source is the Co-Housing Association, which is our the nonprofit that supports co-housing communities. So if you go to cohousing.org, 
that's the Co-Housing Association, and they have a directory of communities all across the country. So existing communities, forming communities, where there's homes for sale, where there's you know groups in the very beginning stages. So, and they also host a lot of uh, conferences. Last year, they had a whole series of virtual conferences. Um, and so it's a great way to both get more information about co-housing and to find out where there are communities. And, um, and then as we move out of COVID, most communities have uh, tours. So you could look up what's in your area and um, it's been you know, pretty much shut down for because of, the, of COVID, but uh, hopefully by next spring, we're moving out of that. And you can actually go visit communities and get a sense of them. Um, and I think that's often where people start because you get intrigued with an idea. Do I want to, you know, do I want to live in Port Townsend? Do I want to live in downtown Seattle? What, what's really going to work with my life? You know, what is, I need to know more. So I think most people start with exploration. And then there's my book, uh, Creating Co-housing, which also talks both about, you know, existing communities as well as the development process. So I would say people generally start with education, trying to figure out more. And then the, the forming communities that have openings will generally host fairly regular, you know, like monthly orientations. So you can sign up for their, now they're, everybody's doing it virtually to find out more about their specific opportunities, you know, what, what their community is about, what their pricing is, what their timing is. And, how does that work for you? It completely makes sense that communities actively want to share what their community is doing because your community can't be stagnant. It's got to be growing and evolving. And so you put effort into that. Yeah, no, exactly. And I would say that's one of the lessons learned is originally a lot of communities, they moved in and they kind of shut the doors and didn't do any more. Right. And now really trying to have a presence out there so that the people who are looking for what we have to offer find you, right? So, so just as an example, the association there's been for the last many years in April, the la I think it's usually the last weekend in April, co-housing open house day. And they try to get communities all across the country to open their doors and just host, host an open house. It's a great time to go visit existing communities and I think by visiting communities, you get a better idea about what would work for you, what you like, what you don't like. About. Sure. So that beginning, say you're developing a, a new, like brand new site, you're looking for, you're looking for property, you're looking to design the house, but that, that very beginning stage is actually the, the bringing the community together, right? Finding those core people. Is that the part that takes the longest? Yeah, no, I do think it takes, um, as people are sorting it out, yes, that, that that may in fact take the longest. You know, I think often people start with the idea of, oh, yeah, I want to do this with my friends. Mm. Turns out that doesn't work very well. Because <laughs> um, you have great friends, but getting people to agree on a time, place, and a place at the same time mm. is almost impossible. And, and one of the problems with friendships is, you know, like, if you guys say, oh, yeah, we want to do this, then everybody who's your friend is going to say, oh, that sounds so interesting. And you think they're really interested. But ultimately, <laughs> you're committing to buying a home at a specific price at a specific location. And getting your friends to agree on that, I could just can tell you it doesn't really happen that way. 
So that means that most communities, you know, they'll they'll start with sort of a burning soul, right? So one or two or three people who are like, okay, we've looked around at where the existing communities are. None of them are really meet our needs. We like the idea, but we really want to do it here. Mm. So then they start talking and trying to build that core. Um, and that's, you know, so, you know, one of my services that I provide and what we're working with the 500 communities is then taking people's great fantasies and kind of what's real, right? How do, how do we get you in the realm of reality? Mm-hmm. No, I, I wish I could say we could build these for half the price of any other housing. <laughs> right. I haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> so, Maybe by the end of your career, you might have that one down. Yeah, it's getting worse and worse. So, you know, we know housing costs today are a real problem for a lot of people. I don't have a magic solution. Mm-hmm. For that. So helping people who are interested in the idea um, to get real about what it takes to build a community and, and what you can, where you have choices and where you don't, right? And then, and then the other thing is still, unfortunately, I mean, I mean, I wish we had developers that were facilitating and starting projects, but we haven't found the development community to really jump into this. I can find a developer to partner with the group after they're up and going, mm-hmm. but I haven't been able to get developers to start communities. So that means you got a bunch of people who really are just home buyers. They just want to buy into a community. And I get to teach them about the wonders of real estate development. (laughs) And they got to put their own money in because nobody else is going to do it until they get it started and put their own money on the line. Uh, Interesting. So these burning souls, do they usually, are they newbies or do they tend to come from other communities that they're fine with their community, but they, like you say, they have this burning drive to say, I want this just slightly different, or like you say, they want it in a different area. What's the percentage of people who just love the idea, want to give it a try, to people who have done it before, when you're talking about these new developments, new communities? Most, uh, I mean, the overwhelming 99.9% really think that being part of developing their own neighborhood was fascinating. They learned an enormous amount, and they never want to do it again. Right. <laughs> so they're not, you know, these are not a group, these aren't real estate professionals, right? They're not going right. into it to become developers. They just want a neighborhood where they actually know their neighbors and they can work together. So they're really home buyers, right? You know, we're really talking about middle class home buyers. And so sure. so they are generally started by people who are newbies um, that have looked around, not found an opening in an existing community that met their needs and then concluded that they needed to to start a new community. Mm. So we do, you know, that's one of the things I'm trying to do with the program that Amy's part of is to grow the professionals who can help support co-housing and getting them off the ground. And they're actually uh, one of the ones who's really um, launching a new model of that is Shelley Parks there in the Northwest, who is building uh, interest in people, interested in co-housing, so she can understand where the interest is. Like if we've got a lot of interest, you know, east of Seattle, then we can go look for land there, right? So, so consolidating the co-housing interest in the Pacific Northwest. Cool. What tends to be the age range? Are we really kind of talking about youngish 
you know, p- people who are starting families and once a co-housing person, are you pretty solidly a, co- a co-housing person? Oh, well, you know, people change, but I would say, I mean, um, interestingly, co-housing kind of grew up with the boomers. So originally, I mean, I, I did 20 years of co-housing meetings um, in my work where we never did a meeting without childcare. Um, mm-hmm. Now the boomers <laughs> are older and our kids have left home. So um, we are now seeing the new generation come in. So I, you know, actually, there's a new fabulous new article I was just reading, but I think that it's a great way to raise children. And I I actually don't know how working parents manage out there outside. (laughs) It looks zonkers to me. So, and I'm really happy. So my own, you know, different communities have different emphasis. There is a whole world of aging in community and there's a lot of interest in that. So that's the boomers growing up and thinking like, oh, this is crazy. I don't want to get old by myself. How do I find some people I like talking with and we have good times together and then we could live in the same neighborhood. So there is a realm of the sort of the, you know, retirement age um, that, and I, I think there what's really interesting is it's sort of a flip on the paradigm of what the way we think of senior housing. So in senior housing, you know, the idea is that you worked all your life and then you put a whole big chunk of money in, and then everybody takes care of everything for you, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of weird, especially when you get the class differences, which is the reality of who's providing the services and who's being served. Mm-hmm. Um, in co-housing, we're serving each other, mm-hmm. right? So how can I be of service to my community? How can I help my neighbors out? And as I get older, I hope those chits come back and support me in my aging. <laughs> my own community is, is completely intergenerational. So I have a brand new baby right next door to me. Oh. And I have my fabulous neighbors, John and Claudia, who celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. With <laughs> wow. So, and so does, I, does, a, does a housing or does a community actively make sure that mix is happening? You, I mean, again, you know, there's... to the extent you can, right? I mean, yeah. in my own community, our emphasis is how to cultivate young families coming in because they just don't move as fast as retirees. Sure. Um, and so that when we have openings that, that we'll have some younger families coming in because, you know, we've graduated. Uh, Nevada City Co-Housing, I've been there for, uh, we've been on site for 15 years. So we graduated a whole bunch of kids off into the world. Mm-hmm. And we got older. I don't know how that happens. So, so, so there's again, different emphasis. Um, so there are some communities that are just really focused on, you know, aging together. Um, and then there, but really the first, you know, 20 some odd years of co-housing in North America was all about intergenerational communities. Mm-hmm. What are you concerned about in making sure that more communities like this get established or are you agnostic? Maybe we just have a handful of them and they work for the people that they work for. Is that kind of- Yeah, no, I think that's, um, I mean, so first of all, I mean, what really drives me, I mean, I actually, you know, I, it's worked for me, right? It's been a great way to live at all these different times in my life. But what really drives me, and when I was coming out as a young architect, you know, sort of my natural direction would have been in the affordable housing world, mm-hmm. but, but, very interested in energy efficiency and now climate change. And and what I was looking at is there is nobody who wastes more resources than the American middle class. 
-hmm. It is not the affordable housing buyers who are wasting resources. It's the American middle class and the subdivision life. And so I was looking at it from like, what I want is I want good models of the good life that use a whole lot less of the earth's resources and help to move us into a more sustainable way of living. And that's what I saw in co-housing. So that's my mission is, you know, this is my little way of tackling climate change because I think we need, we need ways where we can live the good life and feel like, God, I don't know why anybody would want a big single family house because this is so much fun mm. that, um, that just isn't as dependent on fossil fuels and everybody owning their own lawnmower and everybody having their own washing machine. Da, 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 da. What is the average size of a single fam single family home? Well, well, like in my community, they range from a small two bedroom, one bath up to a four bedroom, three bath. So, you know, in different communities, we're always looking at who's the market, who's coming in, what size do they need? So, but I think you'll find a greater variety of home sizes within co-housing than you do in most subdivisions or mm. other housing developments. So well, that's interesting. So one thing that, that you did you haven't touched on is is the common house, which is um, you know a a large structure that's kind of the center of the community, which is typically what three to four thousand square feet. You know, like it's got like a commercial grade kitchen in it that's got you know a meeting room. It's got a, a you know a room that's got a fireplace in it. It's got possibly a game room for teenagers. It's maybe got a music room and a laundry room and things like that. So having those kind of things may not have that necessity to have that huge house where you've got a separate office or something like that. So can you speak a little bit more about the common house, Katie? Um, I yeah. really probably don't do it justice. Yeah, no, that's, that's good for bringing that up there. We, yeah, so I, I, I think of our, so the common house is our shared facilities, right? And, um, but again, we're not 200 units. So you find, you know, a lot of shared facilities in large developments. You know, this is, you know, 25 to 35 households. So when I walk in the common house, I know everybody there. And I really think of it as an extension of my own living room. It's a place I walk through often on my way home while I check the mail. People can choose to have their own laundry in their house, but why would I do that when I can have it in the common house and Carl will take care of it when it breaks down. Um, but but yeah, we have there's a, there's a lounge area, there's the dining area, there's the kids room. And so I think we really see it as an extension of our own homes and people are passing through it all the time. You know, whether it's, you know, somebody will go over to the the great room and lay out a quilt. Uh, one of my neighbor fathers set up his sewing machine and was working on Halloween costumes a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So it is a space that you can, that gives, you know, my house is about 1,100 square feet, but I have 3,500 square feet of common facilities, <laughs> a workshop, right. and bigger, you know, guest rooms. So it's like I get access to all the stuff and I don't have to maintain it alone. Mm -hmm including in my community, just to make you really jealous, a pool <laughs> and a hot tub, which, you know, to do that as a single family house is a huge amount of work. Right. Um, yeah. But there's a pool team. They're on it. And for me, it's the ultimate luxury. I, I'm again, I look at single family homes and I just think, oh, my God, what a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
This was a wonderful overview of the spirit of it and how it differs from other communal living, you know, arrangements. I, it's a pretty exciting area, particularly like you mentioned, Katie, really looking at how do we make this affordable and how can you have, you know, mixed classes in these, you know, really wonderful, supportive uh, communities. Yeah. Can I just tell you a little story? Um, so we have one of our long-term families has just left, actually moving to Bellingham, moving up your direction. So they raised their kids in my community. Um, and then um, after the kids were out of the house, uh, Frank went back to uh, theology school and ended up being a minister. And so this is a new phase of his life. And he was looking for a new opportunity there. So but so we held what we do is we hold circles, right? When we're when somebody dies, when somebody's born, when there's a, kids are leaving high school, we pull together a community circle and share. So we had one of those on Sunday for Frank and Diane, and and they have two kids, and uh, Dominic was home helping them pack up, and he really grew up in the community. And um, I mean, it's just so touching in so many ways. And but one of the things that came out there was how important this family had been as mentors to younger families. Mm -hmm. So there's across the walkway was a family with three boys that are younger and their mom was saying, you know, I could just, I could look to you to ideas about how to parent. Dominic was a fabulous baby. You know, he watched the boys, he demo, you know, he modeled what it meant to be a boy growing up. Um, and so I think that's one of the things we really miss in our isolation is, is how do people do this? How do people age? What does it mean to be an older woman? I've had this incredible ability to kind of watch people ahead of me and make deliberate choices given what I see. So just one example of the richness of being able to live in community and learn from your neighbors. Yeah, that's outstanding. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for for all of these great um, pointers on on co-housing and and taking the time to join us. It was amazing. Um, and I get I think I get to talk to you again this week for our program, which is going to be good. That's um, right. So anything before we anything before we leave? Yeah, I would just um, encourage people to explore it. I think people often sort of jump to I could never do that. Um, or they have all sorts of premonitions. And, you know, if, if there's any little interest at all, I would just encourage people to find out more. Um, you know, because I think, you know, what I was thinking the other day as I walked to work, it's like, you know, what is really weird is not only the single family house, but the amount of personal space we now have, you know. So I live in a rural county. People are building single family homes with one or two people and they're big homes. Yeah. And that is not the way humans have lived ever. That's the radical. That's true. That's true. Right? I mean, we have right. always lived in tribes, in villages, in groups of people that supported each other. Um, and this idea that our ever smaller and smaller families, um, you know, the largest uh, American ho uh, household, the growing demographic is a single person living alone. Mm -hmm. And that that they're wow. they're supposed to live in a single family house with four bedrooms. I mean, it just that's what's weird. Living yeah. in community is as old as humanity. That is the way humans have always mm -hmm. lived. So, so I think True. before you write it off, at least give it a look and see. It may might be something <laughs> to learn from it. 
Yeah, I think All that's right. great. That's I want to thank you too. This was just outstanding information. Thanks yeah. for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you, Katie. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Bye-bye. If you have any other questions about co-housing or anything we talked about today or anything that you're working on in your house, drop us a line at askamy at amyworks.com. This podcast is sponsored by Amy Works, a residential remodeling contractor in Seattle. We want to help you realize the dream of your next kitchen, bath, or basement remodel. Check out some of our work on our website, amyworks.com. Give us a call at 206-478-2019 or send us an email at help at amyworks.com.